Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. New Blood takes on the millionaires. You listen to them talk Spring Stampede 2000. Now hang out with us. This is After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. That's me. I'm Maria Menunos, and you're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz begin. Woo, hello, 83 Weeks fans. Welcome to the show that is just for you. We all love 83 Weeks, so we are going to be talking about the latest episode, Spring Stampede 2000. By we, I mean myself and my lovely co-host. One of them just cannot seem to get his nose out of a darn book. Hello, George Hermosa. Hello, everyone. Oh, I'm reading The Death of WCW. You know, a lot of this is BS. Oh, uh, my. I, sw- I swear to God. I'm not just saying this because you're on here. These are one of the first books that I read where I'm like, it's good for entertainment, but it's totally not factual. And I know that, and I wasn't even there. Yeah, that's one of the few books that I absolutely refuse to sign. I don't know why. I just can't get myself to do it. <laughs> don't put that one in front of the man. Well, we also, uh, I don't know what he's reading, but Steve Kaufman is here with us. What's up, Steve? Oh, hi. Um, this is by the same authors. It's the WrestleCrap Book of Lists. It's 100% entertainment and the best use of their talents. I, I love that. We're actually going to get into a list pretty soon. But since you guys, spoiler alert, told everybody that we have the man here with us tonight, let's introduce him. The host of 83 Weeks, Eric Bischoff. How are you? Hello, everybody. All over the world. Tuning in to After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. It is a pleasure to be with you and Steve and George. I look forward to this every week. This is fun. Me too. Me three. I'm glad to hear that. Eric, you have a little change of scenery tonight. Are you coming to us from the attic? Well, yeah, it's a bonus room up above the garage, and um, Mrs. B let me know in a very kind and gentle way that me sitting down in the kitchen and doing these broadcasts or these uh, YouTube shows while she's trying to prepare dinner is just too distracting. So I've been relegated to the uh, to the bonus room. We can. Well, I think we can thank a super chatter last Thursday for that one. A very specific super chatter. Yeah. That. Yeah. That. that exactly. We're, we're all dealing with some unique issues with our significant others right now, right? I guess that's an okay one to have. Well, no, I, we had a super chatter last week that made a, a comment that was a little edgy, and it ended up being a not safe for a kitchen environment. So, uh, yeah, I'm upstairs, and I kind of like it a little better. I can, I can be a slob. I can make noise. I can do all kinds of things up here that I can't get away with downstairs. <laughs> Yes. Well, we'll see how many noises we can make you make tonight. We do have a live chat rolling this evening as well. I want to say howdy to everybody there. Michael and Thomas and Teddy and ABM and Tara. Wow. Big crew here tonight. Ready to lob some questions at you, Eric. But I thought it would be fun if we, uh, oh, they're blowing up my format already, guys. Michael Mackey says, good morning, Eric. You're the coolest dude in wrestling. What a way to kick off our live chat. Well, Mike, uh, Michael Mackey, it's always good to hear from you. You're you're certainly one of our more one of our more 
avid fans here, and I appreciate it very much. Glad you're here. Good evening. And and Michael, I think you're going to appreciate this. I wanted to give Eric an opportunity to answer to something. You know, I'm like the Google News Queen. And this article popped up just a couple of days ago. It is titled, Eric, now uh, I promise there's going to be a positive spin to this, but this one is called The Most Absurd Signings Ever Made by Eric Bischoff. There are 10 of them. It focuses mostly on your WCW signings. And I thought it'd be fun if we give you a chance to kind of answer to some of these, maybe defend them. You know, it's Earth Day. Happy Earth Day, everybody. So would you maybe reduce these signings? Would you reuse these guys? Would you recycle them and repackage them all together? So I think this will be fun. And we're going to kick it off in a big way with the ultimate warrior, Eric. According to thesportster.com, you regretted signing him to a short-term deal even and didn't sign him any longer because his run there was such a disaster. Do you regret signing the ultimate warrior? No, I don't. Look, you know, it's easy to look backwards and with 2020 hindsight, you know, kick yourself in the ass for decisions you made and, and things like that. But, you know, in the, at the moment, uh, in the, in the situation we were in, um, we tried it. It didn't work. I don't regret I don't regret much. I got to tell you, you know, I don't believe in regret. I believe in learning from mistakes. I believe in looking back and, you know, looking at certain situations and trying to figure out how you could have done it better or how I could have done it better, I should say. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I don't get hung up on regret. You know, it, it didn't work out. You know, Jim Helwig was a very warrior, was a very, very unique cat. And there was a lot of things I liked about Jim. Um, he was so passionate. I mean, passionate doesn't even begin to describe it. And, and I, I like people like that. You know, yeah, they're a little bit of, of a pain in the ass to handle sometimes. And it's a little bit like having a really, really fast horse. They're really hard to slow down, even when you want them to. But I'd rather have a really fast horse that's hard to slow down than a slug that you can't get to move. And sometimes when you bet on a fast horse, it's a little too wild and a little too crazy and it doesn't work out. And that's kind of how I think about Jim. Oh, what a beautiful metaphor. I actually do have a a quick question about that without revealing numbers. And obviously it would be a huge guess, but do you think WCW just on dollars and cents lost out on value for what they spent for the ultimate warrior for one year or broke even, or maybe even made a little? You know, it's hard to say. I don't remember what we paid uh, Warrior. It, it would have been a, a, a fairly high price, I'm sure. Um, how much interest did we generate? Uh, did it pay off in a pay-per-view? I, I would say we probably lost in the long run on that deal. But it's hard to say without knowing the numbers. And I just I don't recall numbers and contracts and values and dollar amounts from two decades ago. So I... I'll assume it was a it was a big number, close to seven figures, if not seven figures. And if that was the case, then we lost money on that. How about someone like Jim Duggan? Would you call him one of your worst signings ever? According to Sportster, he said WCW missed the mark by trying to push guys like Jim when he was kind of past his prime. Obviously, that's something you've heard before. No, and I take exception to that. I mean, if, if anybody from Sportster um, wants to go back and actually do a little research, 
number one, they had no idea how much I paid Jim. Um, and Jim was not a very expensive signing. Uh, but go back and watch some of the tapes from WCW Worldwide that are on the WWE Network. So unless you're a lazy fuck and you just don't have the energy or the, or, or the professionalism to go back and do a little bit of research before you disparage somebody like um, Jim Duggan, go back and look at how the crowd reacted to Jim. Go back and look at the energy that Jim created you know, for the television audience. Uh, and Jim definitely had a role in an important one. And people could say whatever they want about him. And was he in his prime? No, he wasn't. Was it a character that we had watched for a long time in WWF? Yes, he was. But did the crowd still react to him? And anybody that goes back and looks at any of the reactions that Jim Duggan got whenever he came out on television wants to suggest to me that that was a bad decision is clearly somebody that doesn't know their ass from a bucket of rocks. So uh, I would disagree with that one. I like that. I like that. Well, uh, they may have gotten it wrong there, but what about Horace Hogan? Is that one you'll defend, Eric? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Good choice there. (laughs) No. Uh, What about Vincent uh, slash Virgil? They uh, take take to task the link between Vincent becoming a secondary member that helped with group attacks uh, as part of the NWO, but that he kind of got lost in that mix. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he was a bad signing. What do you think, Eric? No, I agree with you, Christy. Thanks for helping me out with that one. He wasn't a bad signing. Did he get lost in the mix? Uh, I guess, you know, depending on what your perception of where he should have been or, or what the mix was, he certainly wasn't an A player. He was a supporting cast member. It's no different than, you know, your favorite scripted, you know, television series or feature film where you have certain cast members that are, they interact with the stars. They're not necessarily there as an equal to the stars, but they have a role and, and he, he played his role well. Um, again, not a high dollar acquisition at all. And, uh, you know, I don't feel the need to defend it, but I, I, I do find it interesting how people decide for themselves, you know, what was a worthwhile signing or not, you know, again, for the money. And I'm, you know, this is, I'm not going to divulge it because hey, I don't remember it. And I don't want to get it wrong because somebody will correct me. Um, but he was not by any stretch, a high dollar uh, uh, acquisition. And look, we needed diversity. You know, I'm not going to be ashamed uh, or hesitant to admit that. That was, you know, an issue in, in WCW. We wanted as diverse. We wanted African-Americans. We wanted as many women as we could get. We wanted Japanese. We wanted Hispanics. Um, so, no, I'm not going I'm, I'm to shy away from that one. I'll defend it. I think it was a good signing for the role in which he played. I agree. Well, Thank as you. long as it's okay with George. Well, no, because, I mean, he wasn't really like a main event player in WWF, so it's not like you guys brought him in with all this hype. He was just a good for what he was. He was known as DiBiase's, you know, partner and whatnot. You guys brought him in as that kind of – I mean, it would pop me when, when Vincent showed – and the fact that you guys gave him the name Vincent on, uh, on TV, I popped for that as well during that time. Thank you, George. <laughs> Usually, where's Heel George tonight? 
Maybe <laughs> maybe he's coming through yet on this one. Marty Jannetty is a guy who usually gets a fair amount of respect. Uh, of course, he was in the Rockers with Shawn Michaels. But again, they're taking you to task on this signing uh, because WCW, they say, mostly use Janetti on secondary shows like Thunder or in multi-man matches. So it was hard for him to establish himself as a single star. Um, was that because you maybe didn't see a lot in him? Then why sign him? What, what went on there? But look, when you here's I'm going to give these idiots an education. Um, when I'm going to have to do some math in my head now, but let's, let's call nitro a two hour show, even there, even though for a while it was a three hour show. So we'll call it a two hour show in prime time um, live. You've got thunder, which was a two hour show in prime time. Uh, most of it live. Um, you had WCW Saturday night, which was a two hour show in prime time, at least on the East coast. Um, we had, uh, the main event on Sunday on TBS, which was a two hour show, I believe uh, in prime time. Then we had WCW worldwide, which is a syndicated one hour show. We had WCW pro, which was another WCW, excuse me, which is another syndicated show. And we had WCW main event, which was another one hour syndicated show. Guess what geniuses you actually have to have a pretty deep cast of characters in order to fill the content within all of those shows. And not all of them are signed because we think they're going to be quote unquote stars, which is a subjective term. Anyway, you need bodies, you need content, you need matches, you need a variety. What would you do? Would you and your fucking genius sit down and have 15 guys on your roster and have them wrestle all the time on all of your shows that wouldn't really work out too well either not everybody that's on a wrestling show needs to be a star meaning a main eventer or somebody that could be in that upper third of the roster sometimes you need guys that are there to have great matches and develop their skills or in the case of marty genetti guys that had been big stars but still have enough credibility and, and equity in their names and their characters <clears throat> to be able to go out and have a match and, and, and be reasonably entertaining. And that's the role that Marty was brought in to fill. He wasn't brought in to be a star. I agree. <laughs> George, we are on a roll tonight. Oh. We have, we are locking this bitch. And, e and even so I know, I know on this list as well, you have Lanny Poffo and I've heard rumors about this. I think you might've even confirmed it because uh, they kind of take it has like it says, and I quote, Bischoff didn't care about wasting money since he was spending Ted Turner's money on Lanny Poffo. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't Randy Savage pay for essentially pay for Lanny Poffo's contract? Yeah, and who are these guys that are that are making these comments? By the way, <laughs> uh, this is the website yes. What's it called? I'm having a hard time hearing you guys tonight. The Sportster. This is a the Sportster. Um, guy named so I, I, with, with people like that, I try really hard as I've gotten older and kind of calm down a little bit, despite the fact that you can still punch my buttons every once in a while. I try to look at things from their perspective, but I have a hard time getting my head that far up my ass in order to see anything. Right. So I'm just not able to see the world the way these knuckleheads see it. Lanny Poffo, again, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They haven't done any research because as George pointed out, yeah, I brought Lanny in. And Lanny, by the way, Lanny Poffo is a great guy. And the reason I get upset isn't because they're criticizing me for bringing certain people in, but uh, it bothers me that these people are, are, are being, you know, 
put into this category and, 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 and treated this way in media. Lanny Poffo came into WCW because Randy Savage wanted Lanny. He wanted, Randy was a very loyal guy. The entire Poffo family was extremely loyal and a very, very tight family. And Randy wanted Lanny to get a shot. I couldn't, I couldn't find room in a budget for Lanny. I couldn't justify it. Randy Savage during the, uh, during a, a renegotiation of his, I think it was his second contract said, look, I want you to bring my brother. And when I told him I couldn't do it, he, he discounted his contract and allocated that to our budget so that we could hire Lanning. So whoever you are that, you know, believes that that was a horrible signing um, and that, you know, the reason I did it is because I didn't care about spending Ted Turner's money. You know, that's, that's typical Dave Meltzer dirt sheet narrative nonsense. And it wasn't true. It wasn't true at all. And add to that also the Slim Jim uh, money that was coming in for Randy Savage as well, which made it probably an even better deal to bring in Lanny Poffo in. Well, it, it well again, the money came out of Randy's pocket, guys. I mean, it didn't, it didn't really cost WCW anything. I was prepared to pay Randy Savage X amount of dollars, and Randy came to me and said, look, pay me X minus what I want you to pay my brother. So it, it in in reality it didn't cost us anything, and yeah, George, you're right. You know the the Slim Jim sponsorship was worth about three quarters of a million dollars a year, which for the first year or two um, covered all of Randy's salary. It didn't cost WCW anything. It was a wash. Uh, it wasn't until about the third year, I believe, that it actually started costing us money. And Landy would be a very valuable talent to someone even now, wouldn't he, as a commentator? He's such an entertaining and intelligent guy. I mean, I know the genius gimmick is a gimmick, but if you ever sat down, and I have several times now over the course of the last couple of years, I didn't really talk to Lanny at all in WCW. I never really interfaced with him. If I did, it was just very so brief, I don't re remember it, um, and inconsequential. But over the last couple of years, I see Rand, uh, Lanny at uh, different signings and conventions and things like that. And I've actually gotten to know Lanny pretty well over the last couple of years. And he is a very, very intelligent guy, a, a sweet guy, and, and, and someone that I enjoy coming across. You know, I'd, I would just as soon sit down and have dinner with Lanny Poffo as just about anybody else I run into on the road. Me too. Well, to top this list off, and Eric, you've defended this one several times, but uh, they are calling Master P your worst signing ever. You've said a lot, you've many, many times explained the publicity that you got out of that made it worth it, right? Was there anything else? Well, no, no, there was nothing else. I mean, it was marketing, it was publicity, it was the ability to reach an audience that we wouldn't otherwise reach. Um, look, WCW was not, not necessarily, you know, a hot topic within the hip hop community. And that was a big audience and a powerful audience. And at the time that we signed Master P, he was one of the most influential and financially successful hip hop artists in the world. Um, amazingly successful with a huge, huge following that did come with him. And it was an opportunity for us to market our product to a community uh, and, and an audience that otherwise we would have a hard time reaching. So, you know, that falls into, you know, that falls into the fuck you guys category. I think there are two types of, there are two types of criticisms, valid ones and invalid ones. And most of these seemed invalid. 
Well, it's because they don't look, these are, these are, these are guys who, you know, don't really know anything who regurgitate and spin old crap that they've heard three or four or five times, you know, in, in the dirt sheets or the narrative that, have, that, that has, you know, arisen from the dirt sheet narrative over the last 20 years, but they really don't have any knowledge of what they're talking about. I mean, anybody that would suggest, if you go back and look at Master P at that time and the size of his audience and the influence that he had and suggest that that was a bad idea. And by the way, a lot of the matches that we had and the angles that we had, you know, were they Dave Meltzer five-star matches? No, they weren't. But were they entertaining? Did they draw an audience? Did they get us ratings? Did they sell pay-per-views? Well, yeah, they did. And and by the way, guys, not you guys, those guys. Um, <laughs> that's what the business is all about. So once again, go fuck yourself. <laughs> See how this stuff, normally I'm calm, I'm kind of mellow, you know, I try to just relax and have fun with this stuff. But Chrissy, you 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 found a topic, you found a way to push my buttons, and that's okay because I know sometimes people enjoy watching me get a little hot. I don't know why, but they do. And and, and occasionally, if you want to press those buttons, then you know, questions like this will definitely do it. We we did poke at you a little bit there, Eric. That's all I right. Appreciate you being a good sport. Um, so let's turn to your fan club, the uh, live chatters here, and a big question to kick this all off i know it's pretty general but you usually know how to handle these anyway eric pro wrestling reviews in a super chat wants to know if you were put in charge what would you change in aew so maybe what do you think they're doing well right now and and what could they do better i think they're doing a lot of things well um the, the only and it's not even a criticism really i know it's going to sound like one i guess so i'm going to try to make sure it doesn't because i i'm really i don't know why i find myself in i guess you know when i look at my twitter feed when i read it it's like people think i'm anti-aew and i'm not at all i mean i have a lot of friends there and and people who i have a lot of respect for who i may not be friends with them because I'm, i don't really know them but i i know of them and have a ton of respect for them so i'm i'm pulling for them um i'm going to watch the show tonight as a matter of fact. So um, what are they doing? Well, they've certainly captured, you know, the imagination. They've certainly figured out, figured out a way to, you know, build their brand and build awareness and social media and YouTube in particular, convert that to a live event phenomenon that they were able to convert to a television opportunity. And by the way, that's a lot to be proud of. And that's a lot of doing shit right, right there. Um, in, in terms of, what I think they could do perhaps differently. And again, I'm going to qualify this because this is what I like, what I'm about to suggest. This is what appeals to me as a 65 year old guy who's been in the business for over 30 years, which is not the same thing that necessarily appeals to a 25 to 49 year old or 18 to 34 year old or 18 to 39 year old audience. So just because it appeals to me doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right way to go. However, I really do believe that they need more emphasis on story. And I know they have stories. I'm not suggesting that they don't. Please don't misunderstand me, everybody out there in the YouTube universe. That's not what I mean. But what I do mean is I think the storytelling could be vastly improve, improved. I think the character development could really be improved. Not as much as the storytelling, because they've got some great characters. 
but I do believe that the characters could be developed to be a little bit more unique, to be a little more different from each other. There's a sameness to the characters to me. Um, and again, it's just me. It's just the way I see things and the way I interpret things. But I, for the most part, I think a better, and this is across the board. This is not just AEW. The WWE is probably more guilty than AEW is. I think the story, the emphasis on storytelling has been abandoned for the most part. It's, it's, yeah, there's a story there. I guess technically, and I know that they try hard to, to, to try to create story, but in my opinion, the storytelling in WWE is no better uh, than it is in the AEW. And I think part of that is because there's so much television now. Part of it is because we've seen so much over the last decade or more. Um, but I really do believe that if there was a little bit more discipline and commitment, more, more commitment than discipline, a little bit more of a commitment to great storytelling as opposed to great action. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to read any of this shit on my Twitter feed about Eric hates wrestling action. Not true. I love it. I love the athleticism. I'm not like Jim Cornette, who, you know, gets all pissy every time he sees people do crazy stuff and super, you know, athletic stuff. I enjoy it too. I enjoy the athleticism. The, the industry has evolved and the audience has evolved with it as, as it should be, by the way. But I don't think, I, I think it's evolved. The athleticism is, has evolved so much and the talent themselves have become so competitive with themselves and each other with regard to the athleticism and the presentation of the match that the storytelling kind of gets lost in the process. And I, I do believe eventually wrestling will go back because story drives every form of entertainment. I don't care if it's a freaking comic book, if it's a movie, if it's a television commercial by the My Pillow guy, no matter what it is, a feature film or 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 an opera or a play on Broadway, it's all driven by story. So anybody that thinks that you can abandon story in the long term and things are going to be just fine. I don't think it's really looking at the world very realistically. I think at some point story is going to reemerge. Look, it happened. Look at, look at what happened with reality television back in the, when was it late nineties, I guess, or whenever it was when MTV, I think MTV was the first real reality show road rules or whatever it was. Real world. Uh, real world. Yes. Thank you very much. And then uh, Mark Burnett came along uh, shortly thereafter with Survivor. Now, right about that time, there was a writer's strike. You guys probably don't remember that. Most of you are too young. <laughs> and and you, even if you're not too young, you probably weren't anywhere near the industry at that point. But there was a massive writer's strike. So from an economic point of view, you had reality television that was emerging and was like this huge hit, largely because of the success at MTV and certainly because of what happened with Survivor, where all of the networks, because they, because the writers were on strike, everybody moved over to reality TV. And if you, and again, if you go back and do a little bit of research, if you're interested in this, you know, there were a lot of writers who thought scripted television was gone. It, there, were, there were scripted television writers that were, you know, looking for long high buildings that they could, you know, jump off of because they thought their careers were over. 
And then you fast forward a couple of years and along comes Sopranos on HBO. And then a couple other really, really well done scripted series. And all of a sudden when the bloom fell off the rose of reality television, because they'd all seen everything, you know, you, you can only see train wrecks for so long before you get sick of train wrecks. All of a sudden scripted stories came back and the stories in the care. I think the scripted world that we're watching right now, whether it's HBO or Netflix or Hulu or whatever you watch, AMC, uh, the quality of the scripted stories, the scripted series that are out there right now is so far and above anything that it's ever been that scripted television came out of the depths of despair and reality is kind of a non-scripted television is now kind of faded away a little bit. You still have some of it, but the stuff that's that, that has stuck around, you know, let's take the Kardashians and shows like that, set them off to the side because they're their own unique universe. But most reality shows you see now are more docu follows, as they say in the industry, documentaries where you're following interesting people around doing real things as opposed to, you know, Orange County housewives or whatever the fuck. So, um, and, and I think wrestling, I think, I think wrestling's going to go through the same kind of thing. I think we're going to see a point. Um, and I'm hoping, I know I keep talking about this. It's like, I, I own a piece of it. I don't obviously, but I, I think what we saw with Firefly Funhouse and the Boneyard match in WWE, I think is an indication at least and the audience's reaction to it is an indication that I'm, well, at least I hope it's an indication that somebody's going, wait a minute, that did as well as it did because it was such great storytelling Maybe we should do more storytelling. I hope so. My hope is that the uh, Money in the Bank match, which is going to be a cinematic match upcoming, can be the proof of concept that that can happen in a very grounded reality. By the way, Steve, I'm really glad you brought in. By the way, Steve, I agree with you 100%. Um, and, and to follow up on that um, statement that you made that I agree with, um, what a brilliant move. What a brilliant move to put the Money in the Bank match. And it's a brilliant move because they were forced into a situation that they didn't choose, right? You can't, can't have it. You can't perform in an arena. Really can't have an audience. It's the money in the bank match. Thematically, it just makes so much sense. I mean, it's climbing the corporate ladder, the, 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 the imagery, the message, the theme, the branding of the money. I think is so significant and so real that it, it makes the whole thing really, really interesting. Yeah. Agreed. I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. I am too. Speaking of, no, no, that's you, George. I was was going to give the super chats. Cause you mentioned the writer's strike. It's funny. Like in 2007, there was a writer's strike and that's when I was a PA on American gladiators and actually met you for the first time, but that's for another time. I'll talk, I'll talk about the longer story. Um, on my days as American Gladiator. But uh, real quick, I have a bone to pick with you because about a month ago, I said, hey, for 420, you guys should do an RVD episode. I was telling all my friends that that was going to happen, but then it didn't happen, but whatever. Um, But real quick, because you mentioned it earlier uh, on the actual episode um, about like, you know, relying on the the stars like the Hogan and whatnot and the Pipers and the Flares. And, you know, I, I agree with it. Do you think in some ways the raw rating, not the, not the actual show itself, but the actual rating itself today is suffering because it doesn't have guys like Brock or, or Taker or AJ or Edge or Orton or 
Samoa Joe or Owens, like all these guys we haven't seen since WrestleMania. Do you think in some ways that the Raw rating would maybe go higher if maybe some of those guys were on Raw on a weekly basis? I I, I don't know. I I don't think so. I, I And I'm, I don't know what the decision-making process was and not having those guys on the show. I don't know what the situation is, but I'm really glad that they're not on the show because I think, and I, you know, I said this on the podcast, I believe, <clears throat> I think every time we see AEW in an empty arena, I think every time we see WWE in an empty arena, as, as a general rule, I fear that the audience is going, meh, yeah, I'm going to watch something else. It's just not exciting. You can't take the audience out of a, a, a format, a genre, where the audience is such a critical part of the show. I've talked about this before. You got wrestler A, you got wrestler B, you got the referee, you got three men in the ring. The most important talent, the most important part of a wrestling show is the audience. Elvis Presley said it a long time ago. The most important part of any show I do is sitting is out there. It's the audience without the audience. The show means nothing. There's no reaction. There's no emotion. People sitting at home feel disconnected from it. It's fucking odd. It's weird. And you keep exposing people to that oddness and weirdness over a period of time. It could be atrophy, I guess, or well, let's just call it that the audience is going to atrophy because the interest isn't there. Whether Randy Orton's on the card or Brock or anybody else is on the show, it's still just too weird. And over a period of time, you're going to convince the audience, not intentionally. And I, and I don't even think the audience is consciously making this choice, but subconsciously they're getting tired of the product. And once the audience gets tired of the product, it's, and, and they make up, they make up their minds they pick up their remote, just like I have right here, and they go, eh, this is boring me to tears. I'm going to watch this. Once they make that, that decision, the conscious decision that they no longer want to watch this, they want to watch that, it's really hard to get them back. You have to work twice or three times as hard as getting, to get them back. And, and we talked about this on the podcast, I think, a little bit. And, and a guy, you know, a guy that, that told me that made that crystal clear for me is a guy by the name of Gary, Gary Considine, still a good friend of mine. Gary was the executive producer for the tonight show with Jay Leno. And we became very, very close. And I remember sitting down with him one day, I was out in LA to do something. I just went over to NBC and hung out with him and had lunch and we didn't have any business or anything. We we're just shooting shit. And we were just talking about television in general and successes and failures and what, you know, let, led to success and what led to failures of some show. And Gary said to me in very crystal clear terms, he goes, Eric, once they, the fans, the audience votes with their remote. And once they vote against you, it's hard to get them to vote for you again. And I think that's true. Well, our live audience is voting for you right now, Eric. They say Eric is letting loose. This is gold. William Schaefer wants to say hello. Uh, VNX said, keep it up. They are loving this, so big shout out to them. And they have questions as well, but I bet you guys do. Oh, I do want to point out, and then, uh, yeah, I have one. <clears throat> I do want to point out that NXT UK is, of all the WWE products, the only one that's subscribing to this. Because two weeks ago, they just started doing the, the history of NXT UK, and then 
here are the superstars and they pick a match from WWE's library they like, and then that's what the hour becomes. So I would love to see NXT UK come out of this better. Michael Mackey in the chat uh, wants to know if you still have the red pin from the hot CIA lady from North Korea. I have it somewhere, but I've moved moved around so many times over the last 20 years that uh, I've got boxes. I've got storage units that I don't even know where they are. Mrs. B knows where they are. Every once in a while, we'll go to a storage unit. We were just down. We had one in Arizona because, you know, I don't want to go into all the detail, but we end up, we we acquired a lot of stuff over the years. And when, you know, you move from one place to another place, you don't always want to bring everything with you, but we didn't want to, you know, get rid of it either. So I've got stuff stacked in boxes and storage units around the country, and I'm sure it's in a box somewhere, but I don't know where. All right. Uh, Well, Eric, I couldn't help but thinking while we listening to this episode of 83 Weeks, you were talking about New Blood versus the Millionaires. Was that idea kind of to recreate what the success of NWO versus WCW? Was that the idea? No, not at all, Chrissy. The idea, I mean, and we did talk about this in depth on, on 83 Weeks, the podcast. The idea was to deal with the reality that we, we were faced with. And I admitted on, on, on the podcast that I react, I I allowed myself to be too affected by a lot of the narrative, the dirt sheet chatter in the internet community, because that was emerging right at the time. It's certainly isn't, wasn't as big as it is now, but it was emerging. And the narrative was that, Eric Bischoff just loves pushing all the old guys, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Ric Flair. These guys are all too – anybody over 40 years old or 35 years old back in 2000 or whatever it was, you know, the the dirt sheet community, the internet community, um, all, you know, ragged us for, you know, pushing all the old guys and keeping the young guys down. That was the the general narrative. And – we allowed, we allowed ourselves, I allowed myself to react to that too much. And the idea was let's, let's, instead of WCW versus NWO, let's have those, the, the veterans, the older guys that have been around for 10, 12, 15, 20, 25 years, some of them at that time, let's create a a battle, if you will, or, or a, a conflict between the young guys that, felt like they were being held down and the old guys that the audience perceived were trying to hold on to their spot. So that was the premise, I guess, or the conceit of that storyline. But it really, we weren't trying to recreate the NWO. We were trying to create a reality based storyline based on the feedback that we were getting, albeit from, you know, probably 10 or 15% of the audience in reality, but we reacted to it. And it's something I regret to this day. Although the angle, I don't think the storyline was that bad. I think the initially I thought it came off pretty well after watching it um, for the podcast, but um, the follow through was lacking and it, it, it didn't really go anywhere, but the original idea was not a bad idea. Agreed guys. Interesting. So we saw Jeff Jarrett uh, become world champion at the end of this pay-per-view. And there's been a lot of criticism as far as, uh, as great as a wrestler he was, as great as a person, as great as a personality he was, he just wasn't main event level. Who else do you think, if not Jeff, if you, if somebody, if you had the ability to veto Jeff being champion at this time, who else would have been a good uh, candidate to be a heel champion at this time? 
God, I, I honestly, George, that's a great question, but I'd have to go back and look at the roster just off the top of my head. Um, I, I would suggest that it be somebody who kind of fell in as long as the issue was, you know, the old guys versus the young guys. Um, Jeff Jarrett was not necessarily a young guy uh, back then. Um, so, you know, making him the world champion was probably not the best choice. I think the, the storyline and the premise of the storyline would have had more equity and would have played well longer had we given that title to somebody who kind of fell into that younger talent uh, side of the equation. It, it would, an example would be Billy Kidman. That's a bad example because I don't think Billy would have been a great you know, world champion. He, he wasn't that great on the mic. But there was some younger talent that was capable. And I think in retrospect, you know, 2020 hindsight, that would have been a better idea. I mean, some names that kind of come to my mind at that time was maybe a Buff Bagwell or a Scott Steiner. Do you think somebody like Scott, who was around six months away from winning the world title, do you think maybe he, he wasn't ready for that spot just then? I, not so much that he wasn't ready. He was definitely ready. Mm-hmm. And, and Scott, you know, proved himself to be, I think Scott in 97, 98, early 99 was some of his best work. So he mm-hmm. certainly would have been ready, you know, in, in 2000. But I don't think that that would have felt fresh. You know, the WCW audience have been watching Scott Steiner since 1992 or, or, or longer. So it wouldn't have felt like anything new. Same would be true for Buff Bagwell. Buff Bagwell was in WCW when I got there in 92 or 91, whenever it was. So, again, that wouldn't have felt fresh. I think it would have been better uh, served to put the belt on somebody, to put the championship on somebody. Uh that was relatively new to WCW that represented the new blood. Yeah. Well, uh, Michael, our, our honorary co-host here wants to point out Eric uh, about another champion that you were the hardcore champ nearly 20 years ago. Can you believe it's almost been that long? Do you have great (laughs) memories from, from your reign as the hardcore champion? Yeah. I don't think anybody ever took that title off me. Did they? I'm not sure. Historian George. Well, I know, I know Haku was the champion, or Ming was champion uh, when he came over to Royal Rumble. So I know he was the last champion. Uh, didn't you beat, like, Terry Funk? I don't think it, nobody beat me for it. So <laughs> I, must have, I'm, I must have vacated the title. Uh, well, um, we're going to do a little bit of digging on that one. Because, Eric, maybe you are still the title holder. God, wouldn't that be great? I could get Conrad Thompson to get me a, a replica, you know, hardcore championship belt. And I would wear it every time we do this show. <laughs> well, that gets to my immediate question. So you don't have a, you don't have a WCW hardcore title in your home already. I have nothing in my home. I, you know, it's even though I've, you know, got memorabilia stuffed in, you know, boxes all over the country. Um, I don't have any wrestling memorabilia. I, I, I kept nothing. And I don't know why I have a few pictures you know, that were meaningful to me. I posted some of them today on, on my Twitter feed uh, and on Instagram because uh, I was going through my phone, you know, and looking at, you know, I had like 3,000, you know, pictures on my phone, about 2,500 of them I don't remember taking. So I went, I went all the way back to the beginning. I found some really cool old pictures, wrestling related pictures that I hadn't seen in forever. And I started posting them on Instagram uh, so I have some pictures of stuff, but I didn't keep any memory. I mean, you don't have like pictures on the wall of myself and things and, 
you know, if you walked into my house, you wouldn't know if I was a, you know, a, a telephone repair man or a wrestling producer. You wouldn't know. Also on, I want to say, on, I say that he, he, Eric might have handed the belt to like Big Vito or someone like that. That's that's what Wikipedia says. That's what I was checking in on oh. June fifth. He wanted on he wanted from Terry Funk on June fifth, and then he gave it to Big Vito and Johnny the Bull and enacted the Freebird ruling on a June sixth Thunder. Wow, you guys are on it. You guys are the shit. Steve had to look it up. I I, I, I know I absolutely had to look that up. Um, William Schaefer gave us a super chat. He wanted to know, Eric, would you ever come back to the WWE? I think we've heard versions of this. I think my question would be if it were a one-off or a short short term deal where you would appear as Eric Bischoff, the televised character. Would you not take that call? Look, of course I'd take the call. And I look, I'd go back to work. I'd work with WWE in a heartbeat. There's absolutely no hard feelings. You know, me leaving WWE or me, you know, being fired from WWE to be clear about it. It was more on me. That was my, that was my failure. That wasn't them. Um, I failed to adapt. That's all there is to it. Um, would I go back there? Um, absolutely I would, but I'll, I'll, I would be more honest with myself. You know, when, when I went there, I kind of just dove in, didn't ask a lot of questions, wasn't really too concerned about things that I probably should have been a little more concerned about in terms of my ability to adapt to the situation. Cause I didn't know what the, I didn't really know what the environment was there. Um, I just figured, hell, I'm going to jump in and do it because that's what I've always done all my life. And it just didn't work out. And, but that's not because of WWE. So I have absolutely zero hard feelings with anybody in WWE. I've chatted back and forth with Vince McMahon since I've left. I've texted him a couple times and, and Kevin Dunn and Bruce Pritchard and, and other people who I, I won't mention. Um, so my relationship there, from my perspective at least, is, is very, very good. And if an opportunity came along that I felt was the right opportunity, that it wasn't a square peg in a round hole, um, and I've, you know, I've been able to reflect and kind of realize that me moving to a place like Stanford, Connecticut, right off the bat was probably not the best choice. I underestimated, or excuse me, I overestimated my ability to adapt to that new environment. And I underestimated how much it was going to take on the business side of things. If an opportunity were to come from them or anybody else, you know, non-wrestling related, I would just be a lot more careful about overestimating or underestimating the situation and my ability to feel good about it. I'll pitch, I'll pitch it now. I think you could have a show on the WWE Network where you just throw to matches that you like and why. All right. Well, call I'll, Vince and tell him. I'll produce it. <laughs> And remember, guys, if you want to hear more about Eric's 83 days at WWE, you can do that on the Patreon page. And Eric, we have got to wrap, but I have to ask you first, ESPN is doing this The Last Dance um, special documentary on the Chicago Bulls. They are reportedly going to be covering Dennis Rodman's time in WCW over the next few weeks. How could they do that without you? Are we going to see you on the ESPN thing? Uh I, I haven't talked to anybody from ESPN, so evidently they're doing it um, without me. Um, they may be using old interviews. They may have rights to footage and content from WWE. Um, I don't know. Um, but I'll be watching. You know, I don't think it'll be anything. I don't think it'll be any less interesting 
because I'm not on it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> maybe, maybe a little less juicy though, but we do want to thank you for spilling all the juice with us here tonight. We really put you through the paces there at the beginning. So <laughs> now we'll yeah, you should save, you should save that stuff for the end. God, man, I get all wound up. But then we'd have, we would be going to like seven or an hour or more. Well, yeah. thank you for your time. Yeah. I know I'm looking forward to hearing about David Arquette in TNA next week. I bet you're uh, looking forward to recording that one or you maybe did already. No, we haven't recorded it yet. I'm going to give you guys a little scoop here. You're going to hear it here first. I'm actually going to have David. I'm going to do an interview with David at adfreeshows.com. It's a Patreon channel. Uh, so it'll be audio and video. And we're going to, we're going to dig in deep. And not, not only digging deep about WCW and why he did it and how he felt about it and, and look at it from his point of view, which nobody really has yet. And I'm anxious to hear it because I've, you know, I've not really talked to David at, at length about this. Um, so it'll be fun for me to do. And I'll be doing the interview myself with David. Um, and then I think we're going to get a sneak peek, I'm hoping, of his new documentary that's coming out. So all of that will be available next week over at adfreeshows.com wow okay can't wait for that thank you for giving us so much to consume uh at the time when we need it the most so uh thank you so much eric we'll see you again next week you guys can follow him at e bischoff at steve kaufman at g hermosa thank you for joining me guys no anytime yes thank you all right. <laughs> and to all of you who tuned in live, we love you so much. We do this on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific time, live on the 83 Weeks channel. So get your questions ready and join us next week to talk David Arquette in TNA. Thank you so much. Take care. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principal.